Hey everybody, this is Pierre Quinn and you're listening to episode number 113 of the Leading Wild Green podcast where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Sidney Freeman, tenured associate professor of adult organizational learning and leadership at the University of Idaho. And in our conversation today, we talk about Dr. Freeman's leadership journey and what he has learned about academia and and his his willingness to use his platform and his learning and his experience to help the generations that are coming after him. Now we're in adjustment mode. I'm recording this intro to this podcast episode with my kids here at home. Normally they'd be at school around this time. So if you hear them yelling in the background, I, I, I don't apologize. I mean, many of you who listen have kids too, and you're having to make adjustments and yelling all the time. Hey kids, be quiet. That just, Sometimes you just you just get tired of it. And where I record in our townhouse, there's not a door to this space. I can't close the door. So, you know, sometimes that ambient sound creeps in. And even with the filters on the microphone and software, I'm sure I could edit it out if we took time to do all that. But we're not. The kids are here. You might hear them in the background. My kids are alive and well. I, I have a family. I'm a real person. Okay, so and we're all struggling with the adjustments that we we've had to make during this time of dealing with the coronavirus and all of these restrictions and shelter in place. And, you know, don't go outside unless you need food or medicine or if it's really a desperate situation and you need some emergency services. So we're just all making adjustments. And one of the things that I want to do on the podcast, at least for the next several episodes and I'll be doing more than one a week just to give you something else to listen to besides the the cacophony of noise that are that comes through the media a lot of times. One of the things that I want to do is just help us make make these adjustments so that on the other side of this we can come out we can come out better. My good friend Jamie Pottinger on uh YouTube no on Facebook, sorry on Facebook, he talked about this time of isolation that we're all in. And how this time presents a unique experience just to work on some of the things that we've been putting off and we can emerge on the other side of this, a better version of ourselves. So would love to hear how you're taking advantage of this, even though it's difficult and tough. And this is a real I mean, super serious thing that's happening. I have family and friends that work in medical spaces and it's daunting and it's overwhelming. And our hearts go out to people who are on the front lines and I'd love to hear how you're dealing with or how you're managing this this unique time that we're in. Feel free to send me an email at Pierre at PRCQuinn.com. Speaking of adjustments, we had to adjust the the tour, the leadership tour and book tour that I've been on, which started last year. Uh, we were headed to Nashville this weekend, Nashville, Tennessee, for the Activate Your Courage tour. But we're, we won't be in Nashville. Uh, and I know you get it. I know you understand so we're taking it online. The Activate Your Courage online summit will be on Sunday from 12 to 4 p.m. And you can get your tickets. You can sh- sign up completely free at activatecourage.eventbrite.com. That's activatecourage.eventbrite.com. We'll be going for the most of the afternoon. We've got some incredible speakers uh, that will talk to you about different aspects of life and leadership. We have a session on relationships a session on leadership and technology, a session on storytelling, we have a session on being, becoming an invincible leader, leading with diversity, uh, finding your leadership style. You, you, you want to be a part of this. This is a great way to get some professional development 
and 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 to have some things that can apply to to how we're living life right now. So more information is at Activate Courage. That's ActivateCourage.EventBright.com. Okay, my guest today is Dr. Sydney Freeman, tenured associate professor of adult organizational learning and leadership at the University of Idaho. His research interests include the college and university presidency, faculty development, faculty careers, and higher education as a field of study. Dr. Freeman attended and completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Interdisciplinary Studies at Oakwood University, where in 2017, he was recognized as one of the alumni faces of Oakwood University. And he earned a master's and Ph.D. in higher education at Auburn University in Alabama, where he was recently named the 2020 recipient of the College of Education Outstanding Young Alumni Award. He was also recently named as one of the recipients of the state of Idaho's the state of Idaho's accomplished under 40 for the year 2020 by the Idaho Business Review. And we have a conversation today about what life was like for him adjusting to just different, different cultures and different paradigms, what his educational experience was like and, and how you can really craft your educational experience to be what you wanted and what you needed to be and how he has adjusted to leading in a different culture. Have a great conversation. I know you're going to get a lot from it. So I encourage you to listen up. Here's my conversation with Dr. Sidney Freeman. Excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast by Dr. Sidney Freeman. Dr. Freeman, thanks for being my guest today. Yes, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So so take us back. What, what was life like for you growing up? Was was being a college professor on your radar uh, as a little kid? No, being a professor was definitely, definitely not on my radar. Uh, I actually wanted to be a gospel singer. That was my goal. I went to a private boarding academy called Pine Ford uh, in Pennsylvania. It's one of four historically black boarding academies. And while I was there, uh, I really was into our musical scene there. And so I wanted to be a gospel singer. And so coming out of there, I thought that that's what I was going to do. But uh, I guess life has ways of kind of turning you in a different direction. So, so what, what made you transition? Like at, at what point you're leave, you're leaving Academy, you are, you know, have these intentions about singing your, your experience and your journey with music, but at what point did you pivot and why did that pivot end up with a nod toward teaching in higher ed? Yeah. So uh, what I did was I got into uh, Oakwood University, which is in Huntsville, Alabama, and I ended up earning a degree in interdisciplinary studies. And so all that means is that you haven't, you didn't choose one, one major. You couldn't just choose one. You, you went to multiple. So uh, one of my areas was vocal performance, but my other area was business management and public relations. But, uh, but while I was there, I started this group called the Progressive Black Caucus. Okay. And, uh, um, you know how there's some people that they get when they get in trouble, uh, they go to the principal's office. Yeah. Well, I went to the president's office. I was always posting things, posting <laughs> things that, that we did. The uh, Facebook and stuff wasn't really big uh, by then yet. 
Mm-hmm. But um, we had uh, posters that we had put up all across campus and stuff, and the president would call us in. And so in my senior year, he offered me opportunity to uh, shadow him. And once I saw how he kind of managed things, I said, man, I want to lead like him. Mm. I want to be a uh, college president. And during my time in graduate school, I earned a master's and PhD in higher education leadership or administration. Uh, During that time, I learned that uh, if you want to be a president at a strong university or a top tier university, many of those individuals have uh, faculty experience. And so uh, I started out once I left uh, Auburn with my PhD, I actually went to uh, Tuskegee University where I became an administrator. And I did that for three and a half, I did that for three and a half years. But while there, um, they didn't open up some opportunities for me to be a faculty member. And I knew that I wouldn't have the credibility to do some of the things that I wanted to do long term if I stayed in that position. And so uh, the University of Idaho uh, by fluke opened up a position and uh, I saw the position online posted by a mentor who at the time was the chair of the department. Uh, And by the time I had applied for the position, he had uh, left to go to um, uh, Australia. He went to Australia. And so I ended up, I ended up, um, um, my application was still in and I got a random call when they said, uh, you know, Sydney, uh, are you interested in still coming to uh, campus to visit the University of Idaho? And I thought it was kind of this fluke. Yeah. And uh, I, I actually went out there and it got really serious. They were really, they were really serious about uh, what they were trying to do here at the university. And uh, they believed that my skills aligned with the direction they wanted to go. So, so let's, let's go back. I want to unpack this part of your narrative a bit more, but I want to go back and let's talk about interdisciplinary studies. Yeah. There, there's like this feeling that uh, as a young person getting ready to go to college, and I know I have some college students that listen to the podcast that I need to have it all figured out by the time I get their freshman year. I need to have my major declared. I need to go start down that road. But you're an example of a person who graduating in interdisciplinary studies, pulling different pieces together for your academic journey. What do you feel like was the, the benefit of going that route versus picking you know, one, one solid major as part of your journey? So I see majors as language, right? So it gives you a set of of tools in which to uh, address problems. So a historian addresses a problem using historical methods. If you're a musician, you think about you think about how do you move people using the arts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so every discipline has their tools, but also it has their language. So what it's afforded me uh, is the opportunity to speak multiple languages, uh, disciplinary mm-hmm. languages. So for instance, for instance, I can sit with musicians and talk music talk, right? But then I can talk to business people and talk about leadership or public relations people about marketing and advertising. I know the differences between those things. 
Now, I wasn't a master where there are some people that really drill down, but I could have conversation. And all my degrees actually were not, uh, all my degrees, even my master's and PhD, are uh, what they call generalist degrees. So they're not uh, disciplinary degrees when you think about history or biology, these solid uh, degrees. But I think uh, I'm of the opinion that people put too much weight on the undergraduate degree. Hmm. I I actually believe that um, that you should get your your undergraduate degree and what you want it, what you want to, and then when you get to your master's, you really hone in on what you want to do. I think there's so much pressure, and I get it because parents are paying so much money yeah. uh, that people want you. They want a return, or a definite return on investment early on. Uh, but if I were to have, if I if I were to talk to my brother or sister. Um, I that's the kind of advice I give them. When I when I used to teach uh, college students, I would tell them uh, that that the collegiate experience is really only about seventy percent uh, mm-hmm. getting your degree. Uh, the thirty percent is that intangible stuff that the networking, the life skills, the relationships that that you need to make. That you're going to have to call on people after you graduate. And you were talking about Idaho. You talked about uh, a mentor posting a job opportunity. How how important is it for us, uh, no matter what stage we are in our careers, but especially in the case of academia, uh, to to really connect with people beyond just doing the job or doing the assignment? Yeah, I think I think that uh, one of my mentors told me this. They said, Sydney, you have great skills. I mean, excuse me, you have great networking skills and you have the soft skills. But what you need to do is work on the hard skills. And so there's kind of this balance, right, Mm -hmm. that you have to be able to um, um, build relationships. So one of the things that really kind of threw me off with this particular mentor when I was in my uh, my I believe it was my doctoral program, the beginning of my doctoral program, he told me that, oh, your relationships with your professors now are reciprocal. Mm. I I was like, you know, that I was scratching my head because I was thinking about the relationship between a professor and the student based on my undergraduate experience, which is the student kind of feels like the professor should come in, they should be prepared and they provide their lecture or activities, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Well, at the graduate level, the expectation is that it's more of a partnership. And mm-hmm. so the professor has their their goals, and hopefully the student has their goals, and you try to find ways in which you can support each other to meet, to meet your uh, common goals that you can um, develop together. Yeah, that that that's tough for some people. You know, that's a head scratcher because of, as you mentioned, that undergraduate experience. How long did it take for you to adjust to this idea of partnership and collaboration uh, that's in graduate level work versus how your experience in, in undergraduate work? How you navigated that? Well, I, that's a good question because I was a first generation student, and so mm. I had uh, particular perceptions of what graduate school was and and just undergrad was right mm-hmm. but um when i left 
So let me give you some context. Uh, I went to I went to Christian schools from pre-kindergarten to through uh, under my undergraduate uh, experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was interesting about that was there was one young lady that experienced that same thing with me that whole time, right? And so once I graduated from my undergraduate, with my undergraduate degree and went to graduate school, I was really, I was like a fish out of water because I had never been outside of a uh, Christian a Christian institutional context. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know what a graduate assistantship was. Uh, and I'll just say what that is now, just in case one of your listeners. Yeah, help us out. <laughs> so essentially a graduate assistantship is an opportunity for the institution to invest in the student. And so what, what they do is provide work opportunities, similar to uh, work study, a work study program, but uh, at a different level in which the students generally get their tuition waived and also there's a little extra stipend so for you to kind of live on. And so it's not much, it's not much, but it gives you something to live on. But I actually, I actually left, I left uh, my, my undergraduate institution, Oakwood, on a Saturday night. I graduated on Saturday night. I drove down, my godparents helped me pack, uh, pack a U-Haul. We drove down three and a half uh, hours to Auburn, and they they dropped me off in my little uh, apartment, and uh, and I started class that Thursday. Wow! So I had no I had no breaks. <laughs> wow! I had no break. So I actually had no break until I um, I had no break throughout my uh, my doctorate. So. Um, I actually, my, so I actually finished my doctorate at the age of 26. So wow. I just went straight. I went, uh, I went straight through. You, you talked about being a first gen college student. Yeah. What's, there's a perception now, uh, from the outside looking in, especially when we talk about PhDs, there's a perception that this thing is borderline impossible. Yeah. Like borderline impossible. How does a first generation college student that comes from a primarily Christian context with um, not as much exposure to some of the nuances of traditional higher ed, how do you go from that to being to having your 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 Ph.D. uh, before you're 30? How how did you navigate that experience? Uh, Well, I think a, a lot of it is relationships. And persistence. One of the great things I have to give my undergraduate institution and my uh, my high school institution is that they may say at our schools that um, we may be arrogant or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. However, they they instill in us, you know, you're not second rate to anybody, mm-hmm. right? And so, even though I didn't understand all the nuances of the context I was in. I never felt less than other people. That's good. Right? Yeah. So I knew that Harvard, so I knew that Harvard was a an elite institution, but I but I didn't feel any less because I didn't go to Harvard. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I, so um, so with that instilled in me, uh, I began to 
develop relationships with people. And I always had in the back of my mind that I only had one shot, mm. right? So that's a different type of, I didn't have my parents to, oh, I take a gap year or, oh, I'm, I'm taking off. Listen, my, my mom said I have four years to, to help to help you. That's not, that wasn't even, I was still paying the majority of it. I was working two and three jobs at Oakwood. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and I did the same thing when I went to, um, when I went to Auburn. Uh, but I had this window of opportunity to maximize it. And so I, so any opportunities I've, I have, I, uh, I squeeze it for mm-hmm. all I can, uh, all I can get. So a lot of it is building those relationships with those who, who know the game. And I would say that academia is a game. Mm. And once you learn the once you learn the tricks, uh, tricks of the game, uh, you can be successful. I, I can share more about a few of those um, later. Okay, so let, let's let's talk about kind of cultural shifts, and we we mentioned one um, getting to a, a public exp- institution after having this experience in a Christian environment and Christian education all of these years. What, what about now this experience? Because you go from Oakwood to to Auburn, right? Auburn, yeah. And, and that's, what, three and a half, three and a half hours? Yeah, south. That's three okay. and a half so- hours south. So we're not, we're we're in Alabama. All yeah. right. And I'm originally from Camden, New Jersey. So oh. I, I'm, away from, I'm, I'm away from home. Wow. This is not like uh, I, I'm with family or anything. So we go from Auburn, Alabama to, I mean, we, we, you talked about some steps in between. You talked about Tuskegee, but, but ultimately where you are now. Yes. How, I, I, okay. Only thing I know about Idaho are potatoes. Right. What, what was it like for you? Because um, I'm guessing, in essence, you, you had to deal with some culture shock and cultural adjustment as well. Um, what, what, what was it like for you having to navigate that adjustment, even outside of the academic context? as a person from New Jersey who went to school in the South and now you're in Idaho? Yeah. So it was an interesting time when I, when I arrived, uh, Obama was still president. It was 2000 fall 2015. And so it was a different environment that we were in. So even if uh, the institution as a whole was not really crazy about uh, diversity and bringing in, people of uh, diverse backgrounds, it was incentivized to do that, right? And so when I when I got here, I was hired by a particular dean uh, and I was hired by a particular provost and those kinds of things. And uh, one of the things that was really good was that uh, my initial, what we call a startup package, a startup package is uh, essentially when you become a professor, they ask you what are the things that you need to be successful in your role. Okay. Okay. And so you give them a list of things that you you, you need. They may say, "Why well, we can give you this, but we can't give you that." But essentially, the goal is for you to be able to um, be successful in your role starting off. Mm-hmm. And so I got a a I, I got some real support as I was coming in. I even got enough support to start an academic journal, which is really uh, important in an academic environment. An academic journal is where professors write 
uh, research papers um, and they are reviewed by other professors to ensure that they are of high quality, mm-hmm. right? And then hopefully the idea is that uh, the papers provide new knowledge to impact society in a positive in a positive way. What were some of the things about the experience, and not just at at Idaho, but in the other places that you've taught and and really served? What were some things about the experience that you that you looked at and said, "This is not what I thought it was going to be," um, in a in in a good way, and then this is not at all what I thought it was going to be in a in a not so good way. And so, sort of more of, um, I'm asking, you know, the, what's the dirty truth about uh, higher education and, and, and being a professor at that level? I think, ultimate, I think ultimately, even though higher education is a, is a, it professes to be more liberal than other, than other contexts, it is, uh, it is often very conservative uh, and it's, and, and the way in which it operates. And so sometimes you may feel like you can step out and say some things and do some things because higher education gives you a platform in which, uh, which to do that um, versus if you were in a, in a uh, Fortune 500 company or something of that nature, mm-hmm. right? So there's a little more freedom. However, uh, the more and more that business is influencing higher education, there's, uh, there's that tension that's, uh, that's there. One of the things that was really challenging for me was that I thought that my mentor, uh, my doctoral mentor, it was their job to help find me a job, <laughs> right? And so, and uh, so they were supportive, but they weren't staying up late at night trying to help me find a job. That was on my, that was on on me to do that. And so there's just those kinds of those little small things. Um, that you that you don't know you don't you're trying to balance for instance you could so one of the things you can predict is that with the change in administration um that um with student loans the the student loans uh uh the interest has gone up over mm-hmm. the years right in, in an exponential way and so now even though you have your doctorate you're also dealing with uh with a certain amount of debt because you've invested into your invested into your uh, education. However, mm-hmm. you have to find ways, supplemental ways to to uh, get yourself out of debt, uh, given that you made that a strategic investment in your uh, education and career. You, you well, I, I follow you on social media. Uh, I read a lot of things that you post. What's what's the impact on you know, especially for those of us who are unfamiliar with with the, the higher ed environment what's what's the impact of relationship of of publishing and research versus classroom instruction because uh, because there are some people who think okay i want to pursue a phd but we have no idea like what do i go with that and i i, I don't want to teach i want to do research or i do want to teach and don't want to do research or you know not knowing that there are different configurations how, how what's the setup like for you and then what are some of the options that are out there? So the setup for me is that I am a, what we call a tenured faculty member. 
Uh, and what that means is that uh, back in the uh, 1940s, uh, one of the things that was really challenging was that uh, professors would speak out on areas of, of their expertise and uh, businessmen and politicians would put pressure on college presidents and faculty when they would speak out on things that were not favorable to those, those particular groups, right? And so what they came up with is this idea of tenure, which would provide, um, I guess, a, a form of free speech protection for people to be able to express, particularly in their area of expertise. Uh, over time, it's evolved, and given the precariousness of job security in any in any field, um, it's become more about uh, job security. Mm. And so, once you so once what ends up happening is a person. This is the general general process that they go through. And I'll tell you about my process, which was a little different. Mm -hmm. The general process is that you graduate with your PhD, you get a, you, um, you get hired by a institution to teach uh, classes, but also to do research, uh, do research and uh, do outreach, which is how do you trans transition the research that you do to impact a uh, community. Mm, okay. So you do that for so you do that for three years, and your colleagues within your department that in which you work for, they review your materials, the work that you've done, and give you feedback on ways that you can improve. Right. Uh, after those three years, you do another three years, taking into account the information, the feedback that you receive from a um, from your colleagues. And then in your sixth year, you do what is called, you go up for tenure. Mm. What you, what that means is you, you identify individuals in your field. So let's say if you're in biology, you find, uh, biologists that are at similar institutions to review your work, mm. right? The, all mm. the work that you've done from year one to year six, right? They review it and then not only they review it, your chair of your department reviews it. After they review it, um, uh, uh, people within your department review it, then uh, people within your larger college review it, then the dean reviews it, and then it goes on and on. It goes to the university-wide, there's a university-wide committee that looked at your work, and then ultimately it goes to the president and the board of trustees, and then they offer you tenure. Well, my process was a little different in that uh, I published pretty well while I was uh, at Tuskegee, and so in the three and a half years that I I was there, I had already uh, published at least 10 articles and written a book. And so, although I had no faculty appointment, uh, I was able to, uh, uh, I was able to, uh, how should I say this? I was able to earn um, 
the rank of associate professor mm. uh, coming in. Now, let me say, here's the hierarchy. So mm. there is assistant professor, associate professor, full professor. So I've never been an assistant professor. Mm. So I, I totally skipped that, skipped that step and became an associate professor. But I still had to go through the tenure process, but my process was expedited. So I did my third year review in a year and a half. And right after I got the feedback from the third year review, they just put me through the tenure process. And I went through the tenure process. Wow. Wow. So what did, what was the maybe tension um, that you faced relative to your process? Did you, did you have to... You know, we're we're in the same work. You're in a workspace, and somebody else. You know, you know everybody's story and how they got where they got. Did you, did you have to navigate any 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 pushback from your other colleagues about your particular process? And, and if so, what, how did you navigate that? Yeah. So we have in Idaho and in 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 various in various uh in various uh spaces that are, are, I would say, white-dominated spaces, um, there is what we call a culture of niceness. And so what I mean by that is, um, whereas I was coming from a a Black environment where if they didn't like you, they would say, I don't like you, right? Or you kind of, or you knew Mm -hmm. where you stood, Whereas in a white environment, because they did not want to be called racist or whatever the issue was, the, the cultural issue was, they may smile on your face, but they may not, uh, you may find out um, um, in a different forum, oh, they're upset because you make more money than everyone else in the department and you just got here. Mm. Uh Oh, you came in and you're at the associate professor level and you didn't go through the assistant professor level. So they were happy when I was coming in and I was assistant professor. But even though no one could argue that um, I did not deserve to be an associate professor, it was just that it was out of the norm. Hmm. And so so there was open there was conversations about, you know, uh, he makes he makes more money than. Uh, than the other professors within the department. I think I was um, the number two uh, person underneath a person who was already at the full professor level. So you have people that have been there 15 years, so on and so forth. Um, uh, And you come in and you're black and they've never had a black person in there before. Um, And I think I'm 30, 31, somewhere in there. And I have dreads down my back, dreads down my back. So this is a whole new thing that they're trying to kind of make, make sense of. And so I told some students uh, a week or so ago that if you're going to do something like wear long hair or do something that's kind of out of the norm, that you need to be excellent in what you do. Hmm. Don't try to, don't try to, you know, wear big earrings and do kind of, you know, show your tattoos and all that kind of stuff. And you're not bringing a lot of value to your um to your environment that won't that won't work there is some well i know you've written a lot about a black professor in 
predominantly white institutions and how to navigate uh, that landscape. Well, what advice would you have for people who, who say, or who gravitate toward um, only comfortable environments? And I know every environment has its sense of discomfort, but what about the people who say, well, that's why you should never, never work at a PWI, or you should always do an HBCU, or you should always stay with a place where you feel comfortable. Speak to the benefit of making space and adding value out of something that's your your unique comfort zone. Yeah, so I think I I will never my wife and I will never be the same um for having this experience in Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um you know, climbing mountains and skiing and um going to national parks and all these things that are outside of my comfort zone. We have we had traveled and gone to we've done road trips to North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, all those things. It's been so enriching because com- I can have conversations across across uh, different cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know different areas. I can say, oh, I've been to I've been to Billings Billings, or I've been to these you know Mount Rushmore. I've been to these different places. I've been to Vietnam. I've, <clears throat> I've been to Israel. I've done these kinds of things that kind of stretch, that kind of stretch me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's important. Uh, a part of my journey is that I want to be, as you can see with my, my t-shirt here, yeah. is that I try to be uh, authentically black. Yeah. What, uh, you know, And so uh, even in Idaho, I am who I am. But that does not mean that I can't learn from others, build relationships with others. And it's been so enriching. And I believe that it's going to pay dividends. I, be, I believe in the future, if I become a president or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, my, my perspective will be, will be different uh, given and I will know how to navigate uh, these environments authentically being myself. Uh, Yet, um, yet, na- you know, navigating it pretty well. And for, for those who, who can't say so you're listening to the audio of this, uh, Dr. Freeman said, shirt says black professors matter. Okay. Black professors matter. Uh, g- g- give us an example of, because clearly you have the drive and the intellect, the grit to, to succeed academically. Uh, give us an example where in a different area of leadership or responsibility, you were maybe stretched by a mentor, stretched by the environment in general, and you had to really learn and grow in that area of leadership while while being successful in, in a different area. I would say uh, self-leadership. And I would say mm-hmm. when I actually went through my tenure process, uh, it was really it was really a hard process because uh, I was actually, I was actually, even though I had over, I had overperformed. So uh, in my time, in my time there, I had within one year published 10 articles. Mm. Wow. Now, let me give you the context. Let me give you the context of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, at our institution, you're expected to do one or two articles per year. Right. So for me to do 10, uh, it also created so that that also created tension, right? Because mm-hmm. if you if you're publishing like that, 
then the question becomes, you know, what are your other colleagues doing, right? Because there's a natural, there's that natural comparison that people begin to do. Yeah, you say, you know, what what's go what's going on. Uh, so um, the the tension became uh, in there that they did not necessarily understand my work uh, because, for instance, I was doing. Uh, strong work, but I was publishing in the Western Journal of Black Studies or the Journal of Black Studies or the Journal of Negro Education, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. were black journals, right? And they're respect, they're reputable and and respected within our community. However, in a white environment, they were not as familiar with those journals. And when they when they would uh, ask people outside of the institution to review my work. Uh, they were unfamiliar with it too because they weren't sending it to black people to look at my work. Mm-hmm. And so uh, through that process, I talked with a mentor and he told me, uh, es- essentially, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, uh, these little videos, they had a, a boy that was from Jamaica that he likes to do uh, to lift weights. But when he, he says, all strength, no weakness, all strength, mm-hmm. no weakness. And essentially, that's what my mentor said. His, uh, my mentor's name is Dr. Nat Irvin at the at the University of Louisville. And what he essentially said: when you respond back to your to your haters in the tenure process, you do not you do not respond to them in a way in which it's you come from a position of defensiveness. Mm. You you position your words and your the way that you construct your position is one that is you're in control. This is your work. And I think what really helped me grow was that um, I really began to understand that I do this work for black people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm clear about that. Now, I think before I was trying to do for everybody and all that stuff, that kind of stuff. Now I am clear about, I I say I'm on loan to the University of Idaho, right? I'm on loan, but I still respond. Why I'm here is because, because who is going to be, you know, who's the, the next black professor that comes after me? How am I providing the, uh, the blueprint for them to be able to kind of navigate things? So uh, I think that was the hardest thing, kind of navigating the space and them not necessarily uh, understanding or appreciating my work in the way in which uh, I thought um, they should have. Now, let, let's go back to this. And, you know, you're saying considering who's who's coming after you. Can you kind of just walk us through the value of using whatever your platform is? Uh, to help, in the case of our vernacular, of, of our ethnic community, to put other people on. Right. There's a big responsibility, and sometimes we get upset at people who uh, the community has supported in one way or another, and they get to a position of success or notoriety or responsibility, and there's a hesitancy or just ignoring the responsibility to help people get to where they are. Can you kind of speak to the the importance of no matter in higher ed or not, you know, we just have different leaders that listen to this podcast, but no matter your leadership position, the importance of helping people uh, get put on and, and sharing your platform. 
Yeah. So one of the things that has been interesting over the last few years is that I've developed an interest in theological um, history in some Ooh. ways. And so uh, there's one particular theologian that I have taken particular interest in, and his name is Owen Troy. And so uh, doing in doing research on him, one of the things that I learned was uh, his wife had done done some good work in keeping some of his papers and things like that, but he did not do well with providing leaving leaving a trail of that information. Mm-hmm. And so he happened to be uh, the first person of any race in, in my particular do- denomination to earn a, a doctorate of theology. And, and you know, and he's African American. I said, wow. You know, it really connected with me. And so um, what that showed me was that I need to be working and doing work in such a way that I'm always leaving a legacy. I'm always, I'm working in such a way that someone else will have the blueprint once I'm, once I'm done. So I use something called autoethnographic methods. And that's essentially a a reflective method of research where you do you essentially write about your own experiences and the way in which you operated within the world or a particular context. Mm-hmm. And so that's been so uh, insightful. But I've also always said that if my brother or my sister happened to say, you know, I want to become a professor. I'm writing in such a way that I have an article that says, that says, if you want to be a professor, this is what you need to do. If you want, if you want to start a journal, this is what you need to do. Uh, if you want to earn full professor, here's what you need to do. So I'm, my work now is, is to crack the code and mm-hmm. then give it and, and to give it to our people. And so I've worked on a project here uh, which was really important, I believe was really important uh, with regards to the, the name of the project is Blacks at the University of Idaho. So Black mm-hmm. History at the University of Idaho. And essentially, uh, we've done, we've interviewed African-Americans at the University of Idaho and also uh, collated information, uh, whether it's newspaper clippings or other things to uh, help us understand uh, Black people's contribution to the University of Idaho. So why is that important? That's important because I need to have a context for where I was in this in this foreign place, right? Mm-hmm. So I can run around and say, well, I'm the first person ever to earn tenure uh Black person, excuse me, the first person, uh, black person to earn um, associate professor coming in at the University of Idaho. Now, that may not be a big thing to to my white colleagues, but that's something that's important that may inspire others behind me. So all those kinds of things are important. My my goal is that when I leave, that I've left a legacy, I've left some some. a trail. I left some some a little little things on on the trail so that people people kind of know the direction they can go. Mm. 
where where can we find I, I call this segment of the podcast short shameless plug time where where can we find more about your work if we want to follow you on social media if we want to read your articles if we want to catch up to with some of what you're doing in your research how, how can we do that so there's multiple places uh, if you just google sydney s y d n e y freeman f r e e m a n junior j r uh, a lot of stuff will come up, but essentially you'll get my university webpage. Then you'll get a uh, a Google a Google webpage where it shows you all my it shows you all my research. Uh, I also uh, someone created this. I didn't do it, but somebody created a a uh, Wikipedia page uh, Wikipedia page with kind of chronicling. My experience, my experiences uh, so far in my in my career, uh, and then there's some other things. So uh, the best way to eat uh, to, to reach me is uh, is via email, uh, Sydney S Y D N E Y dot Freeman F R E E M A N dot J R at gmail dot com. And I'll be sure to put much of that information in the show notes so people can click and easily find. I know there's going to be an interest in your work, in your journey, and some people may even reach out to you about uh, questions about the PhD and higher education in general. So we'll make sure they get the information uh, that you need. My guest has been Dr. Sidney Freeman, Associate Professor at the University of Idaho. Thanks for being my guest today, sir. Thank you. Great conversation with Dr. Sidney Freeman about his work at the University of Idaho and his leadership journey. I know you got a, a lot out of that conversation, and I sure did too. I put some links in the show notes so that you can check out Dr. Sidney Freeman's his work, his research, what he's into, what his contact information. You can reach out to him and ask him about higher academia, about the PhD life, about research and about his journey because he, he he said it in the podcast he's open and willing and looking to share in his journey to help the people who are coming after him hey that's all i got for this episode of the leading while green podcast you know it's my mission to help you live learn and lead with confidence so until next time take care and god bless